This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case books, torts, cases, and contexts, volumes one and two, by Eric E. Johnson. The case books are published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. This means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the author for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution, Share Alike, 4.0, International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Torts Lectures. This is lecture number nine, and in this lecture, we'll be talking about defenses to intentional torts. The intentional torts have accompanying defenses, that is, consent, self-defense, defense of others, and necessity. All of these are crucial to understanding the full landscape of intentional tort liability. Consent is the most important defense to intentional torts. Without it, every shutting of elevator doors would be actionable false imprisonment. A hug between couples would be actionable battery. And every haunted house at Halloween would generate actionable assaults. What is seemingly strange about consent is that, at least in the traditional common law formulation, it is a defense. That means that it is the defendant's burden of proof to show consent. So technically, a person who sends out party invitations could sue everyone who came to the party for trespass and make out a prima facie case against each one. In court, the burden would fall on the party guests to prove that they were on the plaintiff's land with the plaintiff's consent. This may seem an absurd way to structure the doctrine. Let's take a slightly more realistic example. Suppose that a contractor demolishes the attached garage of someone's house. Because consent is a defense, it is not the homeowner's burden to prove that the contractor did not have permission. Instead, the contractor will need to offer proof that there was consent. In this case, it seems intuitively fair to ask that the contractor be able to produce a preponderance of evidence of consent, such as a document signed by the homeowner. Courts have categorized consent as coming from two forms, that is, express and implied. Express consent is consent that is expressed by the plaintiff. This doesn't require anything formal. Express consent can be communicated orally, in writing, or even in gestures. Legally, any of these is just as good as the other. In terms of trespass to land, waving someone into a room is just as valid a consent as delivering a signed written document 
that gives someone permission to enter. You might wonder if gestures or spoken words are legally valid to express consent. Then why would anyone ever insist on a signed document indicating consent? The reason is that parties might later disagree about what happened. In that case, a signed writing will be very credible evidence at trial. We should acknowledge that what is credible to a jury may depend on the circumstances. If a neighbor is sued for walking into a backyard, a jury will probably readily believe testimony that there was a come-on-over gesture. But a jury would be rightfully skeptical of a demolition firm claiming it was given consent through gestures to bulldoze a garage. What this all means is that the doctrine of express consent is perfectly at home in the real world. Neighbors can stay neighborly and informal, but demolition firms are well advised to get signed written permission before they begin work. Implied consent is consent that, instead of being expressed, is implied. Circumstances, customs, context, and culture can all create implications of consent. The validity of implied consent to intentional torts is crucial to how our society works. A restaurant patron takes a paper napkin out of a dispenser and uses it. This is a prima facie case of trespass to chattels. But it's not a winning case because there is implied consent for restaurant patrons to take napkins. Of course, if a restaurant patron empties all the dispensers, taking hundreds of napkins, then the scope of the implied consent has been exceeded and the restaurant has a good trespass to chattels case. Implied consent works on an objective standard. The question is whether the objectively reasonable person standing in the shoes of the defendant would have reasonably believed that the plaintiff consented. Implied consent can arise out of the particular circumstances. If you go into a boxing ring and hold up gloved hands, then you have impliedly consented to getting punched by the boxer waiting in the ring. Implied consent can also arise by community custom. When neighborhood kids walk up to a house and ring the doorbell to sell cookies for a fundraiser, consent to come on the land is implied by community custom. If homeowners want to avoid the implication of consent, they can post no soliciting signs. The objective standard for implied consent leaves us with an important corollary. Consent can be valid even if the plaintiff never intended to consent. This is because the issue is not what the plaintiff was secretly thinking, but rather what the objectively reasonable defendant would comprehend. In addition to being implied in fact, that is, by circumstances or custom, consent can also be implied by law. So, when unconscious patients arrive in the emergency room, they have not consented to medical treatment. Consent in such a situation is implied by law for public policy reasons. In some jurisdictions, 
during hunting season. Consent for hunters to enter private property is implied by law. To defeat the implication, the onus is on the property owner to post no trespassing signs. If consent is obtained by fraud, duress, or a mistake induced by the defendant, then the consent will not be valid. Now moving to the idea of self-defense, defense of others, and defense of property. Tort law guarantees citizens a civil way of settling disputes and getting justice. As such, tort law expects that people will not resort to the use of force against one another. Infringements on their rights notwithstanding. Yet the law does recognize that there are some circumstances under which people cannot be expected to wait to try to vindicate their rights in court. Under these limited circumstances, people can commit prima facie intentional torts and then later escape liability, if sued by asserting defenses of self-defense, defense of others, or defense of property. Self-defense entitles a person to use reasonable force as apparently necessary to prevent an eminent and unconsented to touching that is harmful or offensive, or a confinement. In other words, you can defend yourself with reasonable force where there is an immediate threat of battery or false imprisonment. The law puts stringent limits on self-defense. Notice that the threat must be imminent. In other words, self-defense privilege arises where the defendant has an immediate choice of self-defense or suffering the battery or false imprisonment. If there is time to call the police or if the threat has not fully materialized, then eminence is lacking and self-defense will not shield the defendant from tort liability. Another key limitation is that only reasonable force is permissible. That is, the degree of force must not be more than the force that appears necessary to thwart the threat. Deadly force may only be used where the defendant is faced with an extremely serious threat and where nothing short of deadly force will stop the imminent attack. Jurisdictions differ on whether the defendant has a duty to retreat. Many jurisdictions will not allow self-defense to negate tort liability where the defendant could have safely retreated to avoid the threat. Some jurisdictions, by contrast, allow a defendant to stand her or his ground and use force. In general, jurisdictions apply the same rule in torts as they do for criminal cases. Defense of others, that is, defense of a third party, works nearly identically to self-defense, with one important exception. The exception comes up where the defendant makes a reasonable mistake about whether there really is a threat to the third party. In most jurisdictions, if the defendant mistakenly believes that the third party is threatened, when that person is not actually threatened, then the defendant cannot use the defense of others to avoid tort liability. Let's take an example. Suppose three friends are filming a video on a public street, shooting a scene of a mugging. In the scene, a man pushes down and savagely beats an actress, appearing to be an elderly woman. Unaware that it's a staged scene, 
a passerby stops his car, jumps out, and grabs the actor playing the criminal and pushes him away from the woman. In most jurisdictions, the passerby, no matter how reasonable his subjective belief that a battery was occurring, would be liable to the actor he pushed for battery. Defense of property allows the reasonable use of force to defend both land and chattels against trespass. Generally, property owners must make a verbal demand on the trespasser to stop. After that, however, property owners may use as much force as is necessary to prevent the trespass, short of deadly force. Whether deadly force may be used for the protection of property is a controversial issue. Most jurisdictions do not allow deadly force to be used against a trespasser merely on account of defending a property interest. Although, if there is additionally a threat to a person, then deadly force may be permissible as self-defense or defense of others. If the property is a dwelling and the trespasser is engaging in a breaking and entering felony, then many or most courts would allow deadly force if necessary, that is, if the intruder could not be evicted more safely. Now moving to necessity. The defense of necessity allows a defendant in emergency circumstances to escape tort liability for committing an intentional tort against an innocent person. The defense of necessity is similar to self-defense or defense of others, except that it does not require the plaintiff to have been an aggressor. As a practical matter, necessity is a defense that applies only to torts against property, that is, trespass to land, trespass to chattel, and conversion. Theoretically, necessity could apply to the personal torts, a battery affected by showing an uncooperative person out of the way in order to trip a fire alarm, one imagines would be justified on account of a necessity defense. But such cases, to the extent they come up at all, are no doubt rare. There are two brands of necessity, public necessity and private necessity. Public necessity is when the tort is committed in order to protect the public as a whole from some danger. The defense of public necessity is a total defense, voiding all liability. Private necessity is when the tort is committed to help one or a few people. Private necessity works the same as public necessity, except that private necessity is only a partial defense. The defendant who successfully interposes a defense of private necessity is still liable for compensatory damage for any actual harm suffered. So if a person commits a trespass to chattels by absconding with someone's mobile phone to call for emergency help, then the person taking the phone is liable to the phone's owner for damage to the phone. If the phone owner has not suffered any actual loss, however, there is no claim. So, what good is the defense of private necessity if the trespasser is still liable for the cost of any damage done? For one thing, it means that the trespasser cannot be held liable for punitive damages. But it also means that the property owner does not have the right to self-help measures 
that would defeat the trespasser. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.